Welcome to Christ Fellowship at Little Miami, a church committed to making disciples. Morning. Glad to see everybody here. Welcome to Christ Fellowship. If you haven't gotten your communion cup yet, go and do that now. This will be a great time to do that. And don't forget about your communication cards. They're in, they're in the uh, chairs in front of you or in front of you if you don't have a chair in front of you. Um, it's a great place to put in prayer requests and, and things that you have questions about. Um, also, if you want to give like $5 million to the building fund, <laughs> that would be a great place to put that. See, that, that gets everybody's attention. They're like, oh, what? Did he what? say $5 million? $5 million? Dollars. So, um, but any, anything you need there, we'll pick those up afterwards and, um, and pray for you. Um, so glad to see everyone here this morning. <clears throat> In the Bible, an altar represented sacrificing to God by giving him the best offering based on what they own. The sacrifice was an act of worship it put him above all else in their life. It represented humility and acknowledged that their need of God and complete dependence on him. Paul writes, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's Romans 8, 13. Hmm. Notice the phrase put to death, the flesh or the carnal nature. It will not willingly roll over and die. You have to put it to death. You have to do that each day. It must be a daily crucifixion. So this morning, decide yet once again to build an altar to the Lord, and let's put ourselves on it. Mm. Let's all stand and worship the Lord this morning.
Romans 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Father, we're on our knees with every
C.S. Lewis said, the full acting out of the mm. self's surrender to God therefore demands pain. Mm. This action to be perfect must be done from the pure will to obey. Pain. We don't like that word. And yet sacrifice does require it. So Lord, this morning we are offering you our hands, our feet, our mind, our heart, and probably, Lord, the worst, the hardest one is the will. I think of sacrificing of the animals in the in the first um, in 
thank you. <laughs> and the Old Testament, the OT. No. And yet, in the second, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Somebody want to take over? I, I, no. He's asking for us to put ourselves on there, right? And when I think of the animals, they were not to remain there and get on and off. They were burned up. They were sacrificed completely. And yet, in our lives, a living sacrifice, we have a tendency, as um, Ben and Sean both have said, we like to crawl off sometimes, right? But God wants us, I love how he says it, daily become a sacrifice, daily offering ourselves up. And that's what we're doing this morning. This next song, a hymn that we all know, and we sing regularly, and we have it all memorized by heart, but sometimes we don't think about the lyrics. So this morning, I surrender all. Consider what that really means. This is a prayer to our God. This is our commitment to him. He's not asking us for anything more than what he's already done for us, but he says, sacrifice yourself. So this song is you making that pledge back to him, crawling back up on that altar and offering ourselves up. All to Jesus I surrender all to
small and yet requires so much effort and thought and preparation. You don't want just part of us, Lord. You have asked for all of us, even the things that we tuck deep into our heart that we don't want you to have access to, Lord. You want us to hand that over to you. You gave your all, every bit of yourself for us. We offer ourselves back to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, uh, Ecclesia. Go ahead and prepare for communion. I found this in the Christian Standard this week. It's titled Two Giant Leaps. July 20th of this year will mark 54 years since the Apollo 11 moon landing. Millions of Americans watched the landing on the Columbia Broadcasting System. Walter Cronkite was at the news desk that afternoon covering the landing. He heard the words of the crew when they touched down on the moon. Houston, Tranquility Base, the Eagle has landed. And he was without speech. Took off his glasses and simply says, shoo. The time was 3.17 p.m. local in Houston, four days, six hours, and 46 minutes after liftoff, the Apollo crew had traveled 240,000 miles across the most complex machine ever conceived, guided by the most sophisticated computers ever built, and boosted by the most powerful rocket ever launched, <laughs> only to come within 30 seconds of running out of gas. <laughs> Charlie Duke replied, Roger Tranquility, we copy you down. Neil Armstrong, who took the first steps on the moon, uh, famously said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But as amazing a feat as it was for a man to walk on the moon, it doesn't compare to the giant leap that occurred when word became flesh and dwelt among us. On one occasion, Armstrong said he considered himself just an ordinary man who was privileged to do some extraordinary things. But when God became man, an extraordinary being determined to come to earth as an ordinary man. Jesus' sinless sacrifice at the cross for all of humanity's sin was the reason he made that giant leap to earth. And at communion we remember both giant leaps. We look back at Jesus' sacrificial death for us, aware that without his giant leap from heaven to earth, we could not be saved. We also look forward to the coming of the Lord, aware that we await our own giant leap from earth to heaven, at which time we might exclaim, shoo-wee, <laughs> or we may be speechless. But wouldn't it be nice to hear Jesus said, Roger, Christian, we copy you down. <laughs> Let's pray. God on high, El Shaddai. Your name is above all names. You're same from the ancient of ages to the newest of ages. You haven't changed. Thank you for your sacrifice, gift of salvation, and 
forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, friends. Welcome to Christ Fellowship at Little Miami. Before we launch into things today, we want to dismiss our kids and a word to parents in the room. Today's topic is sexuality. So if you have not had the talk yet, you might want your kids to go to the children's programming, else you'd be having the talk this afternoon, whether you wanted to or not. Uh, if you're with us this morning for the first time, you have an excuse for not doing what we're about to do, but I'd like for you to try it anyway. For those of you who are with us on a regular basis, we memorize scripture every month. And so you're supposed to be working on memorizing a passage. Let's see how well you did. I'm not going to help you. Turn to the person next to you and go. Guard yourself from idols. Okay, okay. Now, what was hilarious from... Stop, you're done. Your time's up. If you don't have it now, you don't have it. Uh, what's hilarious from my angle is, I, you know, I said, turn to your neighbor, and some of you guys were seriously like... <laughs> I tur I'm technically turned to my neighbor. My head's still looking at the screen. Hey, um, we've been in a series called Fortresses, where we're looking at what Paul describes as fortresses. They're bastions of power set within this world and set within our own lives from which the adversary launches attacks against the people of God. And so far in this series, we've addressed two issues. In the first week, we talked about the fortress of self-sufficiency, the idea that I can do it myself. And we said that that strikes directly against the word of God for you, which is you are not good enough on your own. You need me to do something on your behalf. Then last week as we got together, we talked about the issue of apathy. We talked about how many Christians, we, we know that we're not saved by our works, but sometimes Christians take that to the nth degree and they just assume that by grace we're saved, we let everything go, and we don't have to do anything else into eternity. But you were saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance so that you would walk in them. And so it's necessary that while we're, our works don't save us, we are saved for works. We're supposed to be doing something for the kingdom of God. This week, as we gather together, we're going to be discussing sexuality. And, and I promise if that makes you uncomfortable, I assure you it makes me more uncomfortable. I would rather not have to be up here talking about this. So then why are we talking about it? If this is not child appropriate, why are we discussing it during church? Because not everything is child appropriate that we have to talk about. 
Because the kingdom of God is bigger than merely that which can be handled by a child, and because the world is speaking and spewing lies, and so we have to respond as the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? That said, uh, we're not going to pull any punches during the course of this conversation. Um, it, again, it'll get a little bit awkward at, at times. And I, I would just ask if, if you're worried that we're being too crass in our discussion or anything else, please be charitable with your listening to this. In order to express the truths of the gospel message, sometimes you have to address things head on, and we're going to do so today. Years ago, um, when my daughter Grace was a child, she was two years old, so we're talking around 2004, 2005. Now, I know this and what I'm about to tell you because I wrote an article at that time for a Christian publication, and I happened to find the article again this week, and I was like, ooh, this fits with the sermon. Well, Grace was about two years old, and uh, Lisa was working part-time, I was working full-time, and uh, so between my mother and my mother-in-law, I was watching Gracie during mornings, three days a week. And so we'd spend the morning together, my two-year-old daughter and I, and on this particular morning, we were enjoying a bit of kind weather while sitting on the deck together and sipping our respective beverages, chocolate milk and coffee. I had the coffee in case you're wondering. I would not be so unwise as to give my daughter caffeine. Two-year-olds and caffeine do not mix. On that morning, our coffee talk was reaching a lull. Gracie loved to talk and blabbered endlessly. But she decided at this point that it was time to venture off into the yard. And so off we went out into the yard, one of my stride for every four or five of hers. There's so much to explore in our backyard. We just built our house. And so we had all sorts of like fallen trees and things that you can climb on. And we had lots of toys, these colorful little gadgets and things we put out there so she could play with them. And of course, if you know a two-year-old, they promptly ignore those in order to go play with everything else. She wanted to pick up sticks and hit things or go catch bugs. But one thing she was doing on this particular day was she would decide that it was time for her to make a break for the road. Now, this is before we had our yard fenced off. And so she'd be playing and then she'd kind of look at me and then you just see that gleam in her eye and then off she'd go, just darting for the street where cars were going by, you know, 50 miles an hour. Fortunately, as I said, I had the adult stride and she only had the child stride. And so I could catch up with her and a few steps. And so I grabbed her up, picked her up. No, we don't go out front. We went back out into the backyard and she got to playing something else. And then she looked at me and off she went again. So I went after her again. I snatched her back up. And uh, this time I decided that I was going to try to reason her with her, you know, like you do with two-year-olds. Optimistic, I know, but I, I actually just I held her and I walked around and I we point I pointed to the street, and I tried to explain, you know, ouch, you know, a car comes by, it's going to hit you, and there are only so many creative ways you can use the word ouchie, but I, I think I exasperated them during the course of the conversation, and I, she seemed to be getting it as it went along, like she started to look a little bit distressed, figuring out what I was talking about, and so then we walked back into the backyard again, and I set her down, and then she did something strange. She looked at me and she was like. And then she grabbed my hand, and she started trying to drag me out to the road. <laughs> All right, now, what was fascinating about this is in my mind, I was trying to piece together, okay, what's going through her mind as a two-year-old? She's looking at me, and she thinks, okay, it's bad for me to go out there, but if I can drag dad with me, if dad goes onto the street, then it's no longer wrong for me to do what I'm about to do. This instance happened to coincide with a discipline issue that I was experiencing in the ministry at the church I was working at during that time period. Um, 
I had a, uh, a student who was a dear friend of mine uh, and had uh, declared uh, one day, I'm homosexual. Christianity says nothing bad about homosexuality. Ben has misunderstood the scriptures and he has misled all of you. Uh, and so uh, I want to declare that this is, this is good and this is right. Whose side are you on? And he did that with a whole youth group. He did it on, online. And uh, so we had to deal with it as a discipline issue. And I tried to talk with him and he wasn't willing to talk with me. And I uh, wanted to have conversation about the issue, but he just didn't want to converse. And in the aftermath, when he ev eventually did start speaking with me again, he acknowledged that the reason he had done it was he was, he was looking for all, all the years he was building up to that point, he was looking for a great homosexual relationship where he could show that God was with him in that relationship. And this was his objective. This was his goal. If I could just show that God's here with me, then what I'm doing is not bad. There is nothing wrong about what I'm doing. Now, what my friend was doing was not novel to him. In a relativistic culture, in a culture that believes that right and wrong are completely up to you, it's all your decision and what you want, there are a lot of people who think this way. They think that if, if I can just show that God is with me, or if I can just, if I'm sincere enough, if I just believe hard enough, then surely God has to join me in the midst of whatever I'm committing myself to. If you believe that, if we all believe that, then shouldn't we just conspire to declare that nothing is sinful? And at that stage of the game, wouldn't God's hand be forced? And wouldn't he have to just acknowledge our particular truth? Do you believe that? The problem is, just like a 29-pound Gracie trying to pull her 220-pound father, you cannot move the infinite God. By the way, 220 pounds is well in my past. So if you're looking at me like... That dude's lying. Yeah, that's, this is historical. <laughs> the idea of moving God out of his position, changing God, is mistaken. You may as well grab onto the nearest tree and try to lift up planet Earth. The only movement that is going to be produced is probably in your bowels. It's, it's not, you will not move the infinite God. God will not join you in endorsing sin, and your sexual thinking, your conduct will be one of two things in this life. Either you will say, God, you are right, you are author and Lord, or you will march defiantly in the traffic empty-handed. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, Father, I know this is a sensitive issue, and as this topic, I know, uh, strikes home for a lot of people, from, for personal desire, aspects of personal desire, for uh, people who are in our families who struggle uh, with these conditions and situations, to personal sin, things that we're trying to guard ourselves against having to change. God, as we approach this, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to the inner man in each of us, that Lord, you would direct our course and our thinking, that we would align ourselves with your thoughts on this matter. God, we ask for wisdom and insight. We ask that you carry us forward and teach us more and more as we come to know you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to start today by talking about human sexuality. Secondarily, we're going to talk about the battle that we have in this regard. And lastly today, we're going to talk about throwing down the fortress of sexuality. Let's start by talking human sexuality. When you were a kid, did you ever get the giant, giant box of crayons? Uh, we usually didn't in my household. I was always a little bit envious when you get to school and you see that kid pull out that monstrosity of a box of crayons. You know what I'm talking about? The Crayola one with the pencil sharp or the crayon sharpener in the back? How cool is that? And, and I, we had them occasionally, but we didn't usually have them. And there was some part of me that was just like, how can I be expected to perform well in school if I don't have that? 
the reason was not just because of the, the crayon sharpener. The reason was because we like choices. And there are a lot of choices in that crayon box, right? I mean, you have innumerable colors of brown and reds and everything. and you, Colors you did not know exist. Colors you still don't know exist. They exist in that box. We want options. We want choices. But this, is, this plays very strongly into our message today and the message from scriptures. Henry Ford was once quoted. He was saying, speaking about his Model T. And he was being asked, customers, uh, being asked questions by customers about it. He said, our customers can have their cars painted in any color they want as long as it's black. Ford's comments were humorous, but they're also quite poignant for what we're talking about today. You see, the creator, the designer, gets to determine the nature of the design. The author tells you what is true, and then you either believe him or you live in delusion. So what are our choices as regards sexuality? Let's just spell out what the world is doing with sexuality right now and what we have done with sexuality historically. The sexual categories are as follows. First, traditional man-woman marriage. And you might be thinking, traditional in what sense? Traditional in the sense that this union has been recognized as the normative union in every human culture we have ever examined. Let that sink in for a moment. Anthropologists know this is the case. This is the normative relationship. Traditional in the sense that the biology of a man and the biology of a woman are complementary and clearly intended to go together. Uh, this is not just true from our statements or our understanding or your health classes in elementary school. It's actually described this way in the scriptures. Um, the word for man and woman, as they occur in the Genesis account, are the stick and the crevice. Let the reader hear and understand. Traditional also in the sense that this relationship is procreative. How many of you are the byproduct of a relationship between a man and a woman? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, talk to your parents. Every person in this room, indeed every human life in the whole history of planet Earth, with one notable exception, are the result of a man-woman union. Even if the relationship was less than the prescriptive ideal set forth by God, we all come from that union between two people. It's also traditional in the sense that this is one of only two unions, one of only two sexual unions, that the Bible recognizes as right and righteous and prescribes. The other one being um, refraining, celibacy, abstinence. So it's abstinence or celibacy or marriage between a man and a woman. That's what the scriptures indicate is right and righteous. It also bears mentioning that this is the only sexual union in which we see God does the uniting. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. I think I listed it wrong up there. Yeah, it's not verse 46. It's 4 through 6. I forgot a dash. Every week we do one of these. It's your job to figure out where. <laughs> Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, God has joined together, God has joined together. Let no man separate. This relationship, the relationship between one man and one woman, is not criticized by any culture as far as I can tell. I've never seen a culture who said this was unnatural, deviant, or abnormal. This is the norm. Everybody on the same page here? All right, let's continue on with other options, different colored crayons in the proverbial box. 
Um, there is marriage, and then there are people who deny the marriage vows and go outside of the marriage vows, extramarital engagements. There's extramarital, premarital uh, engagements of sexuality, which is when two unmarried people come together. Now, the scriptures instruct people to be committed to one another in marriage. It was God's plan that he do the uniting before you do the uniting, that the two come together and become one flesh before the two decide to bring their flesh together. This was so strongly stated in the Old Testament regime that if a person had sex outside of marriage, before marriage, in that context, uh, the whole community would come together and go, okay, now you have to be married. And if they were like, no, don't want to be married, okay, well, here's what still has to happen. You have to pay the bride price. It would be equitable to this. You have a high schooler couple who gets in trouble. All right, well, then the high school boy now has to pay the father of the girl $10,000. I'm all for this being brought back into modern culture. I think people would learn to control themselves pretty quickly if something like that were in play. So extramarital, premarital engagements, this was not God's design or intention. Extramarital, adulterous engagements. This is when two people are married and one person says, you know those vows I made? I'm going to break those. And then they go off and do whatever they want. We talked about this extensively in our discussion of the Ten Commandments that we did uh, last month. So go back and watch that video if you want, more, want to hear more about adultery. Extramarital, pornographic, and cybersexual encounters. We invent new ways of doing evil, don't we? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30 actually discusses this. It's, it's, the problem is a fantasy life that goes in the wrong direction. This is an act of unfaithfulness to the marriage vows. It does a great deal to corrupt marriages. It also functions as a hidden or secret sin that often keeps people from doing what they're supposed to be doing for God. People feel awkward serving in the kingdom of God or in the church because they know they've got this secret sin that they're, they're continuing on and they're unrepentant of. There's also extramarital romance-based fantasy fiction. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is there are a lot of streaming services, there are videos that people watch, there are books that they read, romance novels, that put their brains in bad places and have them fantasizing about something that isn't their marriage. It's interesting to me. I was once teaching a class in which I was discussing the dangers of pornography, and everybody seemed to be on board. But when I turned my attention to attacking novels like Fifty Shades of Grey or the Twilight series, I got some blowback from some of the ladies. One lady in particular was like, you don't understand. Fifty Shades of Grey is about a woman who's trying to help a man through his deep-seated problems. I'm like, uh, no. Fifty Shades of Grey is a sadomasochist prostitution fantasy. Do you, did you not see that when you read the book? The Twilight series is a novel that glorifies necrophilia. Excuse me just a second. I think I just saw Spider. Oh, well. Was he? Feel free to get up and smack him the next time you see him. Be brave. Be bold. It's a fly. Well, that's why the spider's up here. All right. Here's the problem. Uh, when, when people are constantly engaged in fantasy behaviors and chasing down fantasies, and, and allowing themselves to have romantic fantasies. Um, you're setting up really unrealistic expectations for your marriage and your marriage experience. Your husband can't be a sparkly vampire, no matter how hard he tries. Women, and particularly women, I find transgress in this regard. You have to be on your guard against some of this stuff. Um, know your mind and know when you're crossing lines and be honest enough with yourself to pull the reins when that kind of thing is happening. Okay, let's discuss other sexual options that our culture has set forth. 
Uh, you may be familiar with the LGBT community. The full acronym, as it stands now, last I checked, is LGBTQQIP2SAA. Uh, and let me, Doug, Doug Wilson, the Bible scholar Doug Wilson, calls this the letter people. Uh, let me, let me uh, explain some of what's here. All right, now, first of all, lesbian, female to female sexual relationships. This is addressed in Romans chapter 1. Uh, gay is a specific reference to male on male sexual relationships. That's addressed in Romans 1, Leviticus 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, bisexual condition, it's a, man, a person who engages in sexual practices with either gender. That's addressed again in Romans 1. Uh, transgenderism, which is a person who self-identifies as a member of the opposite sex. That's addressed in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Uh, queer which is where a person describes himself as non-binary, gender-fluid, gender-queer, or gender-non-conforming. In other words, I'm not a male and I'm not a female. I'm somewhere in between or somewhere else. The second cue is for questioning. That is, not sure what you are sexually. Uh, as a person who occupies that category. I'm not sure what you are. If you need help in that regard, look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. He made them male and female. So there's your options. Um, the I is for intersex. Intersex is having biological elements of both genders. In very, 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 very rare instances, this is the result of biological deformity. Uh, more often than not, this is the result of hormone treatments or surgical alterations. The plus is having an identity or orientation that is not covered in the other portions of the acronym. It's sort of a catch-all for people who wish to define themselves differently. So if you sexually identify as a cat, then you are part of the plus category, or if you sexually identify as an automobile. And these are real things and real conditions that people ascribe to. Um, 2S stands for two-spirited. This is the notion that a person can have both a male and female spirit confined in the body of either a male or female. And A is asexual. That is a person who lacks sexual attraction. Let me say this. There is nothing wrong with being asexual. If you're a person who is not drawn to a member of the opposite sex, that's totally fine. Jesus spoke about that. Paul spoke about that. He said this is an advantage for the kingdom of God in many ways. If you're not attracted to anybody, if you have a condition where you're not attracted to anybody sexually, that's perfectly fine. Okay, the last A is for ally. Ally is someone who makes a point of being an activist for the preceding categories, even if said person does not occupy such a category. Many Christians want to be allies. They want to be in a position where they can advocate for people who are in uh, same-sex situations or transgendered situations. Let me say this. The Bible addresses this very specifically. You deciding you're going to ally yourself with people who are doing wrong. Romans chapter 1 talks about it, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 discusses it. Paul chastises the, Corinth, or the Corinthian church. He says, look, you guys are like patting yourselves on the back about how you're willing to embrace this sexual misconduct in your church. He goes, you are in the wrong. You are way out of bounds. There is definite condemnation for anybody who declares themselves an ally to somebody who's actively practicing something that's wrong. If you want to be their ally, here's what that means. Your ally, if you're, for, to be a real ally, you have to be the person in their life that says, I love you enough to say things that are going to hurt your feelings. I care about you enough that I'm not going to just let you think that this is okay by God or okay for you. There are other sexual behaviors, taboo or illegal sexual behaviors. Most of these are deviant or criminalized. For instance, uh, polygamy or polyandry. Uh, that is one woman with many uh, husbands or one man with many wives. Uh, this is illegal in the United States. 
Uh, some Mormons still secretly practice it. It's normative for them. Actually, when I preached on adultery a few weeks ago, and if you're out there, hi, some dude laid into me because he was like, polygamy's okay. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> read Jesus' statement in Matthew 5. No. Uh, anyway, sexual slavery is misconduct that is not permitted and illegal. There's apparently a really good movie about it that I have yet to see, but intend to see this week. Uh, pedophilia, that is a relationship between an adult and a child, is criminalized right now. But there are organizations actively trying to seek overturning those laws. Necrophilia, uh, sexual relationships with dead things. Bestiality, sexual relationships with animals. Incestuous relationships, that's relationship between near relatives or family members. And then there are fetishes too numerous to account uh, for things like furries and faux babies and inanimate objects, all sorts of sadist, masochist endeavors. If, there is a, if there's a twisted view of sexuality out there, um, thank you, Internet. Those people have now found one another and are trying to propagate those ideas. This is an issue. It remains an issue. And the question for us is where to draw the line. Where do you draw the line? What's off limits? Is anything off limits sexually? It's interesting that most people do not want to have that discussion. Where is the line drawn? And when I say people are afraid to talk about this issue, I mean everybody. It's not just Christians. Any secularist you've ever met is generally terrified to actually have a discussion of where lines should be drawn in this regard. In fact, most will vilify anyone who even proposes that we have a discussion. Why? Because clarity of thought in this matter is a threat to people who want to hold positions that are unbiblical. One option for where to draw the line is where God does. Where does God draw the line? Abstinence and celibacy or marriage. Those are your options. Abstinence and celibacy or marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. Wait a minute. Everything else is sin and must be avoided? But what if I really want to? Doesn't matter. What if I find that lifestyle very appealing? Doesn't matter. What if it comes naturally toward me and I have a proclivity to think that way and function that way? It doesn't matter. God expects that every one of us restrain and refrain with regard to sexual desires that fall outside of the two categories that God has ordained. In fact, God doesn't just hold those who know him to be accountable in this regard. In Leviticus 18, God says that he was punishing the Canaanites for this very transgression. That list of stuff that's forbidden, God says he was chastising the Canaanites for. Now, did the Canaanites have any revelation from God? Not so far as we know. They were a people group who were practicing whatever they practiced with their deities. They were sacrificing babies in the fire and doing horrible things like that. But everything else that we listed sexually, they were engaged in at some level or another. God says this in Leviticus 18, 24, and 25. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all of these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out or vomited out its inhabitants. In other words, God's saying, this people group who doesn't know me, I'm still holding them accountable for this. One option is to draw the line where God does. A second option is to draw the line where culture does. If culture says it's okay, then it's okay, right? If our government makes it legal, then we have to recognize it as legal. There are many in the church who say that very thing. Five Supreme Court justices said a certain thing about marriage, and now, as Christians, shouldn't we abide by what the government has said? Do you really believe that we can vote something into being righteous? 
Could we vote to make pedophilia legal now and it would therefore be good? Could we just get the Supreme Court to say that incest is a virtue or that necrophilia wasn't really harming anybody and now these things are considered to be a virtue? Do you believe that? If a person legitimately believes that morality is decided by culture, you could ask him this question, all right, well, what do you do with the, the Muslims who throw homosexuals off buildings in their culture? Isn't that just their culture? So isn't it a virtue for them to just pitch homosexuals off a building? You believe that? I don't believe that's right. Another option of where to draw the line is individual determination, consent. If a person agrees to do it, then it's therefore good for them, right? Decide for yourself what is right or wrong. This is where most people stand on this issue. I do what I want. Whatever a person decides is right for them is what is right for them. Everybody gets to do what they want. Does everybody get a choice when it comes to sexuality? Did the victims of sexual slavery get a choice? Does the person who's forced to produce pornographic material get a choice? What do you make of the fact that autistic children are being systematically guided by our children's hospitals to believe they were born the wrong gender? Do you think that's a fair choice? Do you believe a person deserves the choice to destroy themselves with heroin? Would you say that was good? And if you believe that's good, would you advocate that for your children? Hey, you know, you could be a doctor or a lawyer, or you could kill yourself with heroin. It's your choice, honey, and whatever you choose is good. Do you support your spouse's desire to fill their minds with pornography or to throw pornographic images of themselves on the internet? What if they chose to? Isn't it therefore good? What if your spouse chooses to have an affair with another person? Both of them are consenting adults, therefore what they're doing is right, right? Friends, do humans ever make choices that harm them? Do humans ever make choices that destroy their lives or that do harm to all of culture? There's a reason timeshares are being sold. Humans do stupid things. <laughs> Another option is to say that there is no line. Many people think they occupy this position and think that they're freedom fighters until you actually ask them questions. If somebody ever tells you there is no line sexually, everything should be totally good, then just say, do you think raping sheep is good? Most of them will go, oh, no, I didn't mean that. But there is a growing group of people uh, uh, and people who advocate for an anything-goes condition when it comes to sexuality. Any promiscuity that a person could be engaged in, they advocate for. If there's a deviance out there, then there's a community that now exists to support it. You might be thinking I'm overstating the case here. Um, a couple years ago in the Pride Parades, uh, one of the parades was going in route, and they began to cheer and chant, uh, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. And that made some waves. Did you hear much about it this year? It's happening in almost every pride parade now. We're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. Who's pushing the drag queen story times at public libraries? Who decided we needed to sexualize kids? Who are the moms who are taking their kids to that? A movie about Tim Ballard, um, the uh, operator of Operation Underground Railroad. Uh, this is the guy that the Sound of Freedom movie is, is based on. This guy engages in going to other countries and throughout our country and liberating children who've been sold into sex slavery. And yes, that is happening all over the world. The movie highlights this engagement. And from all accounts, the movie has been an amazing movie. Most people who watch it are incredibly moved. But you know who's chastising and criticizing it? 
Rolling Stone Magazine, CNN, MSNBC, pretty much any group that is out there that is a high level of media power is like, this is garbage. This isn't really happening, though we do know it's happening, and it's happening universally. We have the data sets on it. We're recovering kids from this, these programs all the time. So why on earth would mainstream institutions be saying, that's not going on, stop looking at that, don't talk about that? Could it be that maybe many of their heads are involved in that very thing? Let's talk about the battle. One of my professors in Bible college He'd occasionally get a request from students or former students, and they would say that they wanted to meet because they were having some crisis of faith. Inevitably, he says, the student would come in and would sit down in a chair across his desk from him, and they'd express their consternation at how they'd been deeply investigating the scriptures and the history of the church, and it had led them to a place where they just weren't sure they could believe the Bible anymore. And he'd say to them, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, any of these issues you need to work through, and I'd be happy to help you get through that. But I want to ask you one question first, and I need you to answer this question before we go any further. Here's the question. How's your sex life? Most of the struggling skeptics would then be obviously flustered and sputtering, saying something, well, well, I don't see what that has to do with anything. It has quite a bit to do with anything. Because most of these people would be like, well, I'm living with my girlfriend right now, or, well, I've got got something of a porn addiction going on right now. Do you think that might be flavoring how you're choosing to read the scriptures and whether or not you decided whether those apply to you? Humans tend to not start with reason and understanding and work work backwards toward practice. That's not how we work. Human beings tend to start start with practices that we like to engage in and then decide what we think is reasonable by what supports our practices. Let's talk about how these things become fortresses in our lives. How does this become a stronghold in the individual life? In one sense, this is a fortress because it justifies personal sexual sin. We are experts at explaining to ourselves why what we're doing is really not that bad. We get very good at explaining why the commands of God were made for people who lose control. Those people need these commands. But for me, it's okay because I'm really in control and every, I'm, I'm all right. I'm the person who's all right. Those commands are for people out there. It turns out that lying's not just wrong when you do it to others. Lying's actually worse when you do it to yourself. And you know who's really good at lying to you? You are. Why? Because you really, really, really want to believe those lies. For most human beings, crossing lines and doing what we know is wrong is appealing. Have you seen that in yourself? There's part of you that wants to do what is new and different and forbidden, in part because we know that we shouldn't, and whatever is hidden from us remains a mystery so long as it's hidden from us. Uh, the, the cartoon The Simpsons, there was this excellent episode where Police Chief Wiggum is talking to his son Ralphie, and he's like, what is your fascination with my forbidden closet of mysteries? got a closet that Ralphie's not allowed to go into. We, we get that immediately, right? You know, here's the thing that's off limits, full secrets. Don't look at it. And most humans are like, well, I, I want to see what you're talking about. If we could a moment, for just a moment, see our lives through the eyes of God, I think we'd see that we're kind of like a person who's standing over a bear trap just going, I just don't want to touch it. I just want to know what it's like. Just that center panel, if I can just touch that, I think then I'd be good. I could probably walk away from this, and then I'd be okay. If I can just put my hand on that for just a second. I've been in counseling with a person who explained to me that he was leaving his, his wife and his kids, and that made him morally superior to me because he was being brave and honest. I've counseled a guy 
who was trying to get permission from the church to leave his wife. And he was having an affair, but that didn't matter. It wasn't that he was having an affair. He was doing it for his kids. That's what he's telling himself. I can't tell you how many horrifically destructive family and life situations were excused by somebody saying, I can't help it, I was just following my heart, or I fell in love, I can't be held responsible for what happened next. People find dozens of reasons why pornographic addictions are actually helping them or helping their marriage. No, they're not. I was once speaking with a woman who said she had to have an affair because she needed to have that affair to help her self-esteem. Yeah, because that's what God's most concerned about, that you think you're awesome. That's his biggest priority for you. Now, most of you can listen to this and you can, you can hear how foolish this sounds when you're hearing it from about somebody else. Do you know how foolish your own lies sound? Do you know your own lies? Do you know the lies you're trying to tell yourself? It is a fortress in the sense that many people are trying to protect what they're doing sexually and make it okay. They want to drag God out into the road. It's also a fortress in the sense that we have a desire, an innate desire, to give everyone what they want. I don't want to make anybody's life more difficult. I hate being put in the position where I have to tell anybody that what they're doing is destructive. But you know what? That's what love does. Many of us have the sense that the loving thing to do is just to say nothing to anyone that would make them uncomfortable because the biggest problem, the, the biggest sin you can commit is make someone else uncomfortable in this culture. Is that the way Jesus operated? Is it loving to let a person destroy him or herself while remaining quiet? Can you imagine having the cure for cancer in your pocket and watching someone languish for years, deteriorating as the cancer eats away at them because you wouldn't want to make them think that you thought they were unhealthy. So last week we pointed out that Jesus came to divide people. We said taking on Jesus' mission means that we're going to have to stir the pot too. If your desire, Christ follower, is just to fly under the radar, if you just don't want to make waves, friend, it is not because you're kind, it's not because you're good, and it's not because you're compassionate. It's because you don't really love those people, and you're a coward. We have a fortress of justifying personal sins. We have a fortress desiring to give everyone what they want and to just be friends with the world. There's a fortress in the sense that we just get uncomfortable because God's commands are unfashionable. I am I'm not a person who's into fashion. That comes as a, as a surprise to nobody. Nobody looks at me and thinks, that person deserves to be on a runway in Milan. In my mind, the cargo short was the apex of all fashion that I will ever need ever much to the chagrin of those people who are creating designs. I'm like, it's got form, it's got function, it's great, it's all I'm ever going to buy. The thing about fashion is, what was cool yesterday is embarrassing today. What is in vogue today is going to be super lame tomorrow. It's, profoundly, it's a profoundly weak person who cannot stomach the idea of being uncool or being thought of as not trendy. How about you? If someone sneers at you, if someone scoffs at you, if someone mocks you, disrespects you, demeans you, or otherwise treats you with contempt, do you bend? Do you break? Oh, that fly. Ugh. I will kill a hundred flies today for this transgression. <laughs> Most Christians like to think that they would lay down their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ, but the unflattering truth is that most Christians would sooner deny Christ then have to say something that's unfashionable in the eyes of the world. What do you suppose Jesus meant when he gave his disciples this instruction? 
John 15, verse 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do uh, to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. What is Jesus saying? Christianity is not going to be acceptable to the world. Your views, Christ follower, are not going to be in fashion for the rest of the world. They will never look at you and think, that's cool. There's a problem if the world seems to be loving you. There is a problem with your spirit and your obedience. Spider, got it. <laughs> well, well done, well done. I think we just pray and go home now. No, all right, let's, let's continue on. If the world seems to be loving you, there's a problem with your obedience to Christ. Um, Christian ethics are never going to make you popular, but they will make you holy, and they could save someone you know from extensive grief. They could also save such a person from hell. Let's talk worldly wisdom. How are they leveling assault against Christianity in this culture? One of the greatest lines in Lord of the Rings occurs when uh, Rohan just gets its feet under them, King Theoden is speaking about his people, and he says, I would not risk open war. I don't want us to get hurt in this conflict. And the response of Tolkien's Christ figure, Aragorn, is to say the following, war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. I think as Christians, we look a bit foolish right now, standing around in a huddle going, don't say anything, or we might end up in conflict with the world in this regard. While our families are being attacked, with particular attention being paid to destroying the lives of our kids. Open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. So are you willing to do anything to fight this battle, or are you just waiting for other people to do the battling for you? How is the attack coming? Well, it's coming in slogans and attitudes. The veritable spirit of the age. Here's some of the slogans, and you've probably heard these things. What consenting adults do in their bedroom is no business of yours. You have no right to talk about it, nor to think about it. You have no right to speak negatively about what people do in the privacy of their own homes. Now, that should immediately set off red flags in your mind here because somebody's telling you what you can and cannot think. There might be a problem there. But let's just think about the logic of that for a moment. If a bulimic is making herself throw up in the bathroom, am I allowed to have an opinion on that? I mean, after all, she's doing it in the privacy of her own home. That's why she's in the bathroom, for privacy. What right do you have to say anything about a consenting adult who wants to make herself vomit until she's horribly ill and destroys herself? What if when a person, a person is attempting suicide in their closet? Am I allowed to speak or think about that? Am I allowed to have any opinion on that matter? Or is it wrong of me because they did that in private? Just because something is done in private or just because a person consents to it does not mean that you cannot have a valid opinion about what's going on, especially if your opinion is reflecting the opinion of God. Another attack. This is not causing, there's no victim in, in this. Everybody here is doing it because they want to, and so there is no victim. Here's a good question. What constitutes victimhood? Who gets to, to, to decide whether or not someone is a victim? In the instance of pornography, for instance, victimhood might be subtle, but it is an absence. People are destroying their minds and their lives and their future marriages and the marriage they're in right now. 
People are destroying the lives of people who are enslaved in other countries, being forced to do these things. And if you knew the garbage behind the scenes that these people have had to go through to end up in a position where they're doing those things, you could never look at that person and think, this is great. If there's a God and eternal repercussions, and there is, and there are, how might our views of victimhood and harm be transformed? It has to take into account eternity. How about this as a slogan? Love is love or love wins. How do you respond, Christian? How about this one? Who gets to define love? Who decides what love is? Did you make that up? Is this all about what you think love is? John 15, verse 13. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, but that he lay down his life for another or for a friend. 1 John 3.16, it's the other John 3.16. Jesus says this, uh, or John says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Do you know what real love looks like? Genuine love is not self-seeking and it's not self-satisfying. It does not chase what I want. Real love, genuine love, is not seeking to orgasm in any way you see fit. And I'm sorry for being crass, but we've got to talk about this as it is. Genuine love is when I sacrifice my desire for the greater good of another. That's what real love looks like. Do not swallow the world's definition of love. The world has no clue. I'm a married man. What would it look like for me to love another man's wife? Well, if you ascribe to the twisted version of love that is propagated by our culture, you would say, well, then that's an affair, right? Isn't that what you do in order to love another man's wife? Do you really think that is the greatest expression of love? That's not love. That's self-seeking and self-interested, and it destroys and it corrupts. For me to love another man's wife means that I honor their marriage and their marriage bed, and I elevate them as a couple, and I hope they have great romance with one another. That's what real love looks like. It sets the need and the responsibility of others above oneself. And it puts me in the right frame of mind. It has me doing the right things. Can you imagine such a community where people did that with one another? God can. It's supposed to be the church. God is love. Any definition of love other than that which is exemplified by God is bound to be a perverse lie that favors self-promotion and ends in self-destruction. Love wins. Amen, love wins. God is love. And in the end, God's definition of love is going to be the one that holds all people to account. The attack does not just end at slogans and attitudes. The attack comes on the church, and the attack being brought upon the church is often being brought upon the church from people who are members of the church. What are they saying? Well, they're saying the church is wrong. Christians have mistaken what scriptures actually teach. And idiots like the one standing in front of you right now think that it teaches one thing when really we know that it teaches another. There are a number of ways that we could interpret these texts. Now, I would love to take about another four weeks and unpack every text that they look at and every text we ought to be looking at. Um, the scope of this sermon is not such that we can do that, but I want to give you a reference. And I would encourage you, please, I exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ, check out this material. Mike Winger, who is a phenomenal Bible teacher, teaches in a church in Southern California, and he's done a four-part series on homosexuality where he unpacks the ways people have perverted these scriptures and how they've messed up these scriptures. He then also, he looks at them in the Old Testament and New Testament. He then talks about the slogans, the arguments they, they forward. And in the fourth part, even if you're a non-believer, watch the fourth part of this series. In the fourth part of this series, he shows why even a non-believer should argue against certain lifestyles and commitments. I encourage you to do that. 
people quickly move past the scripture teaches, or you've interpreted the scriptures wrong when you actually bring the scriptures to bear and say, oh no, let's look at the Greek. Nope, let's look at the Hebrew. Let's unpack what these words are actually saying. And then they quickly move to a position where they say, well, okay, maybe the Bible does say that, but if the Bible does say that, then Revelation is mistaken. It's wrong. If the scriptures forbid sexual practices that I think should be permissible, then it's clear the scriptures must be fallible and flawed. And so while God might exist, and I might give God a nod, we should question any prescriptive teaching that comes from the Bible. The Bible can't be trusted. Set it aside in favor of what you want to believe is true in the spirit of the age. It's usually just a hop, skip, and jump to a person in that stage, in that phase, going, eh, there probably is no God. I mean, if Scripture doesn't reveal him, then why am I getting up early on a Sunday morning? May as well sleep in. There's no legitimate authority, and the inmates are in charge of the asylum. Let's talk about the narrative that's being brought, and let's discuss a little clear thinking. Here are the arguments as they generally come to you. If you have a discussion with people about this, they're going to say usually something like this. I'm offended, or you've offended me. How dare you? I can't believe that anyone is so ignorant as to, or I can't believe that in our modern era, or I can't believe anyone could be so intolerant as to. Uh, here's this argument. Here's a great one. I can't even. Profound. Clear thinking. Friends, being offended and angry is not a good indicator of what is true. I know the culture seems to think that this is a powerful argument. Look how angry I can get. Look how offended I can get right now. That is no indicator of what is valid. Set that aside. In fact, being offended and angry is generally a good indicator that you're not thinking clearly and that you can't think clearly on the matter. Here's another challenge. It's natural. Because it's natural to me, it's therefore unavoidable. I will say this. The best evidence we have right now suggests that it is not inborn, that it, there is no genetic cause. They've done numerous twin studies that suggest as much. Um, or if it is inborn, it is only in small part and probably chemical. But I want to assume, for the, case, for, the, for the sake of argument, assume that it is natural. Assume persons have natural proclivities. You know what category that puts this in? The same category as every other sin you engage in. Anybody have a natural inclination to sin? Just a few of us in the front. You imagine, imagine this, imagine a person saying, well, my family has a proclivity to alcoholism, so I better get to drinking. It's unavoidable. It's my only option. Or how about this? I'm naturally an angry person, so I can't be faulted for running people off the road and beating my wife. It's in my nature. Would you accept that? The law of Moses, uh, transgenderism, is addressed in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, and something interesting said here. God says, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does this, these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, this passage says a lot more than you might be saying at the outset. What it's saying is, this is not new to human history. These issues go all the way back, all the way back throughout time and history, which means somebody looked at their life and they went, it feels more right for me to do this. I want to do this. I'd rather dress this way. I'd, I'd rather be this type of a person. It feels natural. It seems natural. It's, it's what I want to be. It's my identity. But in the same context, God says, though that is your desire, though this is a legitimate desire, don't. I'm telling you to act against your desire. I'm telling you to choose to will yourself against that which you desire to do. God expects you to exert your will to overrule what feels natural to you. Here's another attack. It's my identity. It's who I am. 
some clear thinking on this issue. The scriptures indicate that our first identity in life is bound for destruction. Catch that? Who you are when you were born is bound for destruction. It's bound for hell. And so God calls us to do something. In fact, he says the very best thing you can do is put to death the self in baptism, be buried and born again in the waters of Christian baptism. Your identity is not immutable. Your identity changes. It's the foundation of the Christian teaching. Who you are is not who you shall be. Who you are and who you are becoming is determined by Christ and your identification with him. Now he defines me. Now everything else that I think I am must be subordinate to him. Here's another attack. I'm, a fighting, I'm fighting against oppression. I'm standing for love. I'm a hero. There are a lot of people who are social media heroes out there. They put a flag on their social media account, and that shows you how good of a person they are and how bad of a person you are. Fighting does not make you a hero. Fighting can make you a villain. Don't villains fight? It's unsurprising that wicked people love to fight, create drama, and desire to be self-promoting, and to think nothing of unfairly trashing other human beings in the process. Some clear thinking on the matter. There is an objective judge who literally defines love by his nature, and that judge will one day make evident to you and to everyone else whether or not you are the protagonist or the villain in the story. You got two choices there. You either align with him now, or you'll be shown to not be aligning with him then. I recommend the former. Here's another attack. You're a bigot. You're phobic. You're cisgendered. Uh, cisgendered, somebody asked me to explain after first service. Cisgendered means you're heteronormative. You believe in a monogamous Christian marriage between man and woman. It's name-calling for, for certain people to describe us that way. Uh, these are what we would call ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem means against the man. In other words, I don't like where you stand, and so rather than attacking what you're saying or dealing with what you're saying, I'm just going to attack you. And a lot of attacks come to us this way. Name-calling does not make you right now any more than it made you right when you were five years old, folks. It generally means you're wrong, and you can't contend with an honest position or honest discussion. All right, let's wrap up by talking about destroying these fortresses. How do we fight against this? Quickly. Number one, we recognize our identity. Recognize your identity. I am not my sexuality. You are not your sexuality. Amen? If you are found in Christ and are his disciple, then what are you? Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Through Christ, we're being made into something different than we presently are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, check it out, new things have come. Do you believe you can change? Do you believe God is even now conforming you into his likeness, making you more holy? This is the center of the Christian message. This is who we are meant to be through the gospel. Now, does this mean that God can change my patterns of thinkings and desire? Yes, it does. But let me be clear here. This is not a promise to make you have to stop exerting self-control. You with me? 
This doesn't make everything easy in your life. And this doesn't mean that deeply ingrained patterns of thinking will change instantly. But it does mean that you are now different and a new creature. And you are becoming even more closely related to him in likeness, being a new creature. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 says something really cool. Listen to this passage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that is those who engage in sexual practices outside of the righteous paradigm, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, people who violate their marriage vows, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, and here to be clear, the term that is used is male, receiving male, effeminate, and male who beds other male. Okay, just it's, it's saying both categories. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to verse 11. This is important. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And I know that from people in this audience. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Here I want to say something that is utterly important. If you have not heard anything I've said today, or if you've listened to me and thought, you're a dirtbag, you're a scumbag, I disagree with you. Please hear what I'm about to say. Regardless of your sexual orientation, that is the desires you have, you might be being called to be in a monogamous relationship, or you might be being called to be celibate by God. But though you are called to be celibate, to refrain from sexual encounters, you are not being called to be alone. The church exists for you. God has created a family that is closer than brotherhood, eternal family, and we are meant to surround such people, and we ought to, amen? God has given you the church. He desires that you be part of it, even in your weakness. Recognize your identity. Secondly, recognize your authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Paul says, flee immorality, or to put it in Monty Python terms, run away! Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Let's say it again. You are not your own. You were been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. To whom does your body belong? Does it belong to you? The Christian scriptures are clear. I was bought with a price. I belong to him now, and I have to honor him with my life and my choices and my thinking. If I'm a disciple of Christ, then all I am is subordinate to or subject to him. He is the author. He is the authority. Somebody asks you what your sexual identity is, you'd be clear and free to say, I identify as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is submitted to that. Lastly, we recognize identity, we recognize our authority, and then also recognize that restraint is a universal requirement. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, we've, we've, we sang about it and we talked about it in the worship service this morning. Paul says this, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance, changing your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to make everybody uncomfortable for just a moment by doing this. If you have ever had to struggle against sin in regard to sexual matters, 
If you have had to control your mind or say no to yourself, if you have had to say no to any extramarital thing or something within your marriage or just a mind, anything that you're doing, if you have had to say no to yourself, would you raise your hand right now? Okay, look around the room. Keep them up. Elders, teachers, husbands, wives, spouses, old people, young people struggle. Why am I having you do this? Because I need you to know and you need to know that you are not the only one fighting this battle. Everyone is being called to restrain themselves and conform themselves to Christ's likeness. And by the way, those people who didn't raise their hands, they have struggles of their own. They're going through something else, even if not that. Most of them are liars. (laughs) There is a fortress before you. There is a fortress at hand in our culture. It's a fortress in your life. It's a fortress in the world. And everyone who refuses to enter the battle on the Lord's behalf makes it harder for those of us who are trying to fight. You need to be educated on this issue. You need to be ready to speak about this lovingly, kindly, with graciousness and gentleness, but appealing to the Lord God and speaking his truth over and against the world. You need to do it in your own life. You need to do it for your kids and you need to do it for the culture. Amen. Let's go to our master in prayer. Our Lord and God, you are right and righteous. Father, where we have refused to submit ourselves to you, and be subject to you in terms of sexual engagements. Lord, would you set us right? Would you help us to recommit to you today and to put ourselves in the right place? Father, if there's counseling that needs to happen in this regard, I pray that those people would seek out uh, leaders within this church and other people within this church to get help where they're at. Father, I pray that we would all be encouraged to fight again today and again tomorrow and again the next day as we become living sacrifices. Lord Jesus, we look forward to a time where we will no longer battle the flesh. We love you, O God. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, quickly before we dismiss, and then I'm going to ask parents to run directly over and get your kids so that Jackie doesn't hate me. Jackie's patient, but like, if you had to be working with children, little ones, this whole time, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, first-time visitors, uh, welcome. There's a, there's a card. If you could fill that out and just let us know who you are. Uh, There's also a book on your way out the door. You can feel free to grab one of those on the issue of heaven if you want to do more reading along these lines. In addition, if you're a visitor who's with us or you're somebody who's with us who does not get the newsletter and would like to know more about the church, there are iPads against the far wall as you walk out the door there. Just click the tab at the top that says visitor. Give us your information and uh, we'll we'll give you the newsletter uh, so long as you want it. All right, in addition... um, Offering. There's an offering box between the doors back there. You might have noticed things are getting a little cozy in here. Uh, First service was ridiculously packed out. This one's pretty full too. Um, And so this is why we're building a new building uh, and trying to get a little bit more space so you have a little bit more elbow room or more people between you and the person you don't have elbow room with right now. Um, So please give to the church in that regard as well. Um, We want to ask those who have large trucks, those awesome vehicles that I envy, not to park on row ends in the parking lot. It can cause bottlenecks. So if you have a really awesome truck, go park somewhere further away and walk further. You can do it. All right, t-shirts. T-shirts for CFLM are in. If you haven't picked yours up, make sure you pick it up. If you want to buy one, they have some extra ones for sale. I'm wearing one right now. And I can promise you, you'll, yeah, thank you. (laughs) I can promise you, you will look better in them than I do. I look like the before picture, right? It's, All right, um, bless the new bundle of joy. Thomas and Bethany Broush are welcoming a new baby boy. Uh, and so next, uh, this next month, they're gonna be having the baby. On July 30th, we are having a diaper shower, which I know sounds disgusting, but it's totally awesome. 
Um, so buy diapers for them and have them here by July 30th. In addition, junior high and senior high, they're meeting every Wednesday night, but they're meeting house to house. So you have to have the schedule or you're not going to be able to go to the right place. See Matt up here for, if you'd like to get a schedule and know what's going on. Or Sean, he's another person over here you can see. Don't see me because I don't know. On that note, let's pray. Our Lord and God, um, thank you for this family. And, and thank you that we are, are part of a kingdom that goes on forever. Father, again, help us to fight the good fight today and every day. I pray that you would be raising up kingdom soldiers around the world to do your will and to be faithful to you no matter what. And I pray that we would be those kinds of people. We love you. Be with us as we go forth from this place. It's in your name we pray. Lord Jesus, amen. God bless you. No